You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The floor of the White House strewn with broken china and ice cream. It's a political legend associated with a phenomenon in American politics. Okay, I ask you to consider the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You like listening to this program? Very simply, you like more of it. How the premium podcast works is you go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. It can be as low as $2 a month if you just want the podcast. In addition to getting archived episodes of the podcast sent out on a regular basis, usually with a little bit of curation from me. We've talked about lots of political topics over the years. I've access to a 10-year archive. In addition, there's bonus episodes. For instance, I'm currently reading some of the Jefferson Adams letters verbatim on the site. We talked about in an episode last year about Jefferson and Adams and their resumption of their correspondence. I'm reading some of those letters on the on the podcast. In the last episode, we talked about the Iran-Contra scandal. In, in the premium cast, I talk a bit about the Iranian side of it and how the person that leaked the story was executed and why. I hope you'll consider it. Thank you for everyone who has supported the program. We have support at all levels. There are people who have joined the Chester Arthur Club, the Grover Cleveland Club, Even the Cincinnati, you get different membership benefits at different levels. Sign up at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Tens of thousands of people converge upon the capital of the United States to watch the new president sworn in, pushing to get the best view, charging the steps of the Capitol portico held back only by a hastily configured cable. Upon the sight of the soon-to-be-sworn-in President of the United States, men took off their caps, huzzahed, chanted, waved, and signaled their approval. Watching in the crowd, Francis Scott Key, the author of The Star-Spangled Banner, said that it was beautiful. It was sublime. The sea of democratic faces Men dressed in regular clothes, some in beaver hats, 
Andrew Jackson's election signaled something different. First non-planter, non-New Englander to be president. First Westerner, Scots-Irish roots. First true popular vote winner elected when most states had popular votes for their electoral votes. And large suffrage. Born during the Revolution, but too young to serve, everything was new about the moment. The cannons boomed from the Washington Navy Yard, and the arsenal delighted the crowd. Jackson made a short speech, and with difficulty made his way through the mass of humanity to the carriage, surrounded by a bodyguard of Revolutionary War soldiers, and made his way down Pennsylvania Avenue to his new home. Persons had come 500 miles to see General Jackson, said Daniel Webster, the senator from Massachusetts. And he saw in the crowd's reaction what was happening politically. They really seemed to think that the country's being rescued from some dreadful danger. The crowd wasn't finished just watching the swearing-in ceremony, apparently. They followed Jackson down Pennsylvania Avenue and to the White House, a throng of all sorts of people, from the highest and most polished to the most vulgar and gross. This living embodiment of his popularity, a demonstration welcome to him, as no president before had so matched the idea of popular support for the person of the president with support for programs to be acted on. Something that we call in politics today a mandate from mandare, the Latin to send, to command. The rest of the story is disputed, and some of the descriptions of what happened next might be colored by some of Jackson's opponents and some of those Washington elites. A large crowd, we know, did follow Jackson, did go through the doors of the White House, and the doors of the White House were open to them. Margaret Baird Smith, a socialite, said it was a rabble, scrambling, fighting, breaking furniture. Congressman Hamilton of South Carolina called it a Saturnalia, referring to a pagan festival. It certainly was crowded, so much so that Jackson could not shake hands as expected, but had to slip out a back door or a second-story window, depending on the account. And also, depending on what account you get, the orange punch and ice cream was either moved out of the White House to keep the visitors from coming in and maybe to pull some of them out, or it was passed through the windows to the adoring and thirsty crowd. Margaret Baird Smith, again, the socialite, who's none too happy when what she thinks is going to be a party of just the elite members of Washington Social Society in the White House has everybody going to it. And I'll read her account because I think this is the standard interpretation in history, and it's a lot of fun, and then we'll get into it a little more. Here's what she says. Cut glass in China to the amount of several thousand dollars had been broken in the struggle to get the refreshments, punch, and other articles carried out in tubs and buckets. But if it had been in Hogshead, it would have been insufficient. Ice creams and cake and lemonade for 20,000 people. For it is said that number were there, though I think the number is exaggerated. 
Did you think only in modern times that inaugural numbers were disputed? Ladies fainted. Men were seen with bloody noses, and such a scene of confusion take place as is impossible to describe. Those who got in could not get out by door again, but had to scramble out of windows. At one time, the president, who had retreated and retreated until he was pressed against the wall, could only be secured by a number of gentlemen forming around him and making a kind of barrier of their own bodies. It was then that the windows were thrown open and a torrent found an outlet, which otherwise might prove fatal. Well, that's the account in the textbooks that you largely learn about. There was this kind of riot as the people met the White House for the first time in great numbers. A large crowd did follow Jackson, and the doors of the White House were open to them. But it's likely, if there was damage to the White House, that it was incidental. Maybe food spilled, perhaps a few plates broken. For an event so allegedly regrettable, it would seem to be something that no president would want to imitate. You don't have to look far for a present-day historical comparison when, in this case, the president himself and those around him is making the comparison himself. Yes, Trump is Andrew Jackson. That's what we're hearing. Haven't seen this since Andrew Jackson is his comment in a speech. There was no riot this time at the White House, at least no pro-president riot. There was no mess at the White House from reports that I'm aware. Yeah, you know, I'll go along a bit with this comparison. There is something surely Jacksonian about the situation. I don't know that I buy the direct comparison, particularly because a president that's only been in the office a few days probably shouldn't have any comparison to a president that had two terms, right? But in the movement, in the terms of a sea change in direction, in policy, in view of the world, some of the language is similar to Jackson. You know, during his campaign in 1828, he was talking about seizing the, the, uh, the keys to the stables, you know, kind of sounding like the corrupt stables of the king, a little bit of that drain the swamp stuff. It represented a change in politics more noticeable than the now, that because of the election, a president has received a signal from the American people to implement the agenda. Jackson was an old president for his time, uh, 61, the oldest that had taken office at that time. His wife had died before the election. She had a heart attack. He felt it was due to the stress of the election campaign, which involved charges against her as well as him. He was bitter about it. Trouble with his lungs, with breathing sometimes. There was still a musket ball inside him from a previous duel. He could be cantankerous at times, spiteful of enemies, would attack back when attacked. He used a different kind of rhetoric than other presidents had. Uh, The type of rhetoric he used in public might be what Jefferson or Madison might say in private correspondence. You know, it's one thing to oppose banking policy generally or the paper currency. It's another thing to call the bank a monster and the process of banking evil. He was also one to consider and accept some conspiracy theories, really, particularly involving his opponents. One thing that he thought is that in the Bank of the United States, where he thought he had a good number of enemies, that his opponent, Henry Clay, 
had 30 pieces of silver that he used to bribe opponents. Things like that were common. He's an odd model. He's been on the decline in recent times in, for, in, in terms of a model. A lot of people want him off the $20 bill. It's almost like, do you want to be compared to Andrew Jackson, you know, these days? But, you know, our politics in 2017 are quite odd. His use of the postal system, either indirectly or directly, to prevent abolitionists from delivering messages through the mails, including him requesting for a ban on such material, and most notably his removal of the Cherokees, the Choctaws, Creeks, and other Indians from their lands and sending them on the Trail of Tears has not endeared him to modern times. So it's odd that a president would seek a comparison to Jackson, but uh, he's also a Democrat. Makes him a little different. <laughs> a supporter of increased voting suffrage and a supporter of the popular vote. And one of his first acts after having been robbed, as he felt in 1824, is to submit to Congress a plan to ban the Electoral College, which they did not get done. He does, you know, push the issue very often. You have advisors like Van Buren, his Secretary of State, and then Vice President trying to talk him down on various issues. He comes close to going to war with France in order to settle a dispute. In the end, he ends up succeeding in getting a payment from France. He was also, though, a strong supporter of the Union, who, when the state of South Carolina was threatening to nullify a federal law and not pay a tariff, Jackson, despite his mixed views on, on tariffs and protectionism, threatened to send the army into South Carolina if they pursued the nullification. So there was a, a variance to his presidency, and you, you do have to look issue by issue. It was also a time where Democratic Party was divided in the same ways that are going to lead to the party splitting up and some of them becoming Republicans in the 1850s. The only figure that was unifying him was this very popular president, Andrew Jackson. But an idea that comes out of 1828 and a change in politics, more noticeable then than now, because we've sort of taken it for granted, we sort of accept Jackson's populist approach as the way to be president now, is this concept that's fundamentally different in 1828. The claim of a mandate that voters have sent the president with a command to do something or a group of things. After Jackson, it's more common for presidents to assert this the mandate. Grover Cleveland said that the verdict of our voters, which condemned the injustice of monetary protection for protection's sake. William McKinley said, the question of bimetallism, that is the verdict of the people. The people have voted that it should be done. Calvin Coolidge, this administration has come to power with a very clear mandate from the people. When we turn to what they rejected and accepted, the politics of economy of expenditure stand out. Eisenhower, who received a large majority in both his elections, named the title of his memoir, Mandate for Change. VP George Bush, speaking for Ronald Reagan in 1980, said, Their election was not simply a mandate for change, but a mandate for peace and freedom. Bill Clinton, in his inaugural, said, We have heard the trumpets. We have changed the guard. And now 
each in our own way, and with God's help, we must answer the call. The early Bill Clinton, there's a lot more biblical images. But that's a powerful claim of mandate. You know, we heard the trumpets. Jackson so nearly can be associated with declaring victory, though he doesn't appear to have used the word mandate himself. It's later in his presidency where he'll begin to assert that he has a responsibility that comes from being elected by all the voters. And a lot of this stems from 1824, where he had received the most votes, but through an election in the House, John Quincy Adams became president. So this is an episode where I'll even have to explain what I'm talking about and why I'm talking about it, because I think the concept that a president gets elected with a mandate is so ingrained in our culture. But it would be an odd and ridiculous statement, perhaps, for a member of the Constitutional Convention that created a House first, a House of Representatives, and agreed from the get-go that they would be elected by the people, they would be the voice of the people, popularly elected— It's called for in the Constitution. In other words, state legislature cannot select members of the House of Representatives, popularly elected, and also elected every two years, which brings them a bit closer to the people. That was clear that they wanted to do that. What they argued about a bit, among other things, was the president, his role, how to select him, how to limit his power. They gave him the executive power of the United States and clearly defined that as something different from the legislative power, the power to make laws. They said that he should take care to faithfully execute the laws, implying that the laws are coming from elsewhere and applied to him. And then they give him two specific legislative roles, the ability to recommend matters to Congress and a negative or a veto of that legislation. The very title, the president, a title used for someone presiding over a meeting or an assembly, it's purposely given to be a little weaker. But let's think about this more. The original document, the Virginia Plan, this is what James Madison comes up with Shows it to Washington, shows it to others. This is what Virginia is going to bring to the Constitutional Convention. It really is the kind of shell of the Constitution. So what does it say about all this matter? Well, it calls for a national executive. They wanted someone who is going to manage the United States national government to be chosen by the legislature for seven years. So... There's certainly no way that a president could have a mandate, according to the Virginia plan, because they'd be elected by the legislature. Indeed, through much of the Constitutional Convention, election by Congress, either by the Senate or by the House or both, is the way they're going until they come up with the Electoral College in the end of the summer, 1787. Even that is one removed from the people. And the anti-federalist, those who are opposing the Constitution, particularly Brutus, Cato, the federal farmer. These are the people under anonymous names who are writing letters in the papers of New York address this issue. Now, I think it's so common in constitutional discussions, we're always going to the Federalist Papers that are written by Madison Jay and Hamilton. And it's the same purpose. Those were written to convince people in the state of New York to accept the Constitution. But sometimes you have to look at the anti-Federalists too to see how they understood what the Constitution meant. 
And largely, I'd say they agree with this kind of weak interpretation of the presidential office. They complain intensely about the Senate, indeed, the power of the Senate, perhaps to corrupt the president because the Senate would be the stronger body. They complain about the power of the courts. They complain about the excise tax exclusively being used for the federal government. They complain about the supremacy of federal law. President only gets glancing blows generally from critics of the Constitution, both in the papers and in the ratifying conventions. But Cato, one of the opponents, we think Cato is either George Clinton, the governor of New York, or one of his allies, says, the president cannot represent you because he is not elected by you. He's referring to the Electoral College. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. George Washington gets it. When he's inaugurated as president and there's a huge celebration in New York and the steps of Federal Hall, still there today, not far from Wall Street, that's where the original Capitol was, he reads his inaugural address. And it's pretty short. By the article establishing the executive department, it is made the duty of the president to recommend to your consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. There you go. He's reminding the crowd that he's allowed to recommend measures to Congress. And you'd probably expect that he would then tell people what should be done, what his election, without a single electoral vote against him, what his mandate means, how the laws should change. No, this is what he says. Far better for me to substitute, in place of a recommendation of particular measures, the tribute that is due to the talents of the character selected to adopt them. In other words, George Washington, first president, is saying, it's up to you, Congress, the courts, and the departments. Now, maybe it changed with the second inaugural. Now, his second inaugural now in Congress Hall in the new Capitol in Philadelphia He's just 135 words, and he says, I'm again called on you, I took an oath, and if I don't follow it, I'm worthy of upbraiding from all who elected me. So presidents do recommend measures, they're allowed to do it, but they're light on such things. Jefferson, Madison, Monroe have what you would call a Whiggish approach to the presidency, letting Congress do the action. You take James Monroe, one of the big issues of his presidency is the Missouri Compromise, and he's silent on it. Presidents, in the beginning, are reticent about using legislative power. If you look at the use of power such as the veto, it's not used that much. And it's understood differently prior to Jackson. Washington vetoes two bills, one because it's written badly. Jefferson, Adams, and John Quincy Adams do not veto any bills. Madison vetoes seven, Monroe one. Jackson gets in, and he vetoes a dozen bills. 
So you could see that the feeling generally is that the president should stay out of this business. Were I president, I should desire the legislation of the country to rest with Congress, uninfluenced by the executive in its origin or progress, and undisturbed by the veto, except in special cases. That's Abraham Lincoln. Not as president, of course. And he changes opinion a bit when he became president. Of course, it was during a war. But you see in there the Whiggish view and really the predominant view of the presidency. But Jackson's going to be an impact on it. It's not going to change immediately after him. It's on the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States where his veto power is strongest. The bank goes for an early recharter bill. The bank doesn't have to be rechartered. And you have to understand that in American politics at this time, this great national bank of the United States, controlling a lot of the commerce in the capital, controlling a lot of commerce in the nation's biggest cities, loaning out to other banks and to significant business people, merchants, is as large, even larger in their minds than, say, the Federal Reserve is in ours operated by a private person, by a private board. However, it handles the tax payments of the Treasury. So money from the Treasury goes into the bank, and then as the government needs money, it takes it from this bank. Jackson doesn't like banks. He would run against banks, and his opponents in Tennessee, uh, his giant opponent, uh, Overton, was a uh, was the head of a bank in Tennessee. The Senate and the House to move an early recharter put the issue in front of Jackson and dare him to veto it before his reelection in 1832. And Jackson takes his dare in an extreme populist message, accusing the bank of engaging in shady practices and, and being under foreign influence. And it's Jackson's assumption of this mandate that he'd been elected with that causes him to make a decision to order the removal of funds from the Bank of the United States and when his Treasury Secretary, William Duane, doesn't do it, Duane is a nonpartisan businessman who was appointed to the position. He considers Duane a traitor, engages in a public fight, considers him a secret agent, and eventually he removes him in favor of his good friend, Roger Taney, who takes care of the removal. And the Senate's going to react to this. This is unprecedented action. Henry Clay, leading the Senate, censures him by a margin of eight votes. And then they reject Jackson's nominee for Treasury Secretary Taney. Jackson is livid. He says of Clay that he's reckless, full of fury, as a drunken man in a brothel. That's what he tells his son. He issues an angry protest message to the Congress. His censure is going to be expunged from the record books by a future Senate when Democrats take over, but it hurts him nonetheless. Now, Jackson's assumption of a mandate from the people, of a sending of instructions from on high, is rooted in his election as the first popular vote president, the emergence of the franchise for white men, at least in most states. It's rooted in his 1824 loss, and it's hotly contested by people at that time. Daniel Webster, senator from Massachusetts, great orator, rises the floor of the Senate and attacks his protest message, attacks what he considers a dangerous concept, that the president had a mandate, actually the term that's used is a responsibility as the direct representative of the people. Where in the Constitution is that, Daniel Webster says. 
It is precisely this responsibility under which Cromwell acted, telling the Parliament that the people were sick of them as he drove them off for the glory of God and the good of nation. It's precisely this responsibility under which Bonaparte acted. It is such responsibility that leaves everything to his discretion and his pleasure. John Calhoun rose as well. Why this solicitude to place himself near to the people and push us, meaning the Congress and the Senate, off to the greatest distance? Why this solicitude to make himself their only guardian and protector, their only friend and supporter? It is in order to transmit to them his declaration of war upon the Senate and to seek their support. We no longer take this criticism to mean anything. Calhoun and Webster, a bunch of old senators, takes them seriously. We now kind of accept that this has to exist, some mandate, the concept that the president represents the people. After all, the winning argument here is the president's the one person elected by all people in the nation, and all of those congressmen and senators are elected by divided either states or districts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as Robert Dahl, Yale professor of political science, writes in a uh, journal article on this, president is now endowed with a mystique of mandate, so the president exploits his resources to overcome resistance over the objectives of Congress. And those are objectives that Congress is authorized to seek for their constituencies. Whatever term we may use to apply to an executive that acts like this, we can hardly call it democratic. Robert Dahl. But it's not Andrew Jackson where everything turns, because there's a number of presidents after him who are also decidedly Whiggish, if you might. I mean, one thinks of William Howard Taft. One thinks of... Zachary Taylor, uh, leaving issues to the Congress. Now, the most forceful proponent in any kind of near-modern sense of the mandate for a presidency is an inheritor of Jackson's Democratic Party, Woodrow Wilson. And now he's writing as a professor, not yet president. He writes a dissertation on how the United States government needs to change and get stronger and he sees the person that can do it as the president. There is no national party choice, Wilson writes, except that of president. 
No one else represents the people as a whole, exercising a national choice. He is the representative of no constituency, but of the whole people. There is but one national voice, and that is the president. Wilson also felt that the framers of the convention were not enacting Whig theory. The president is at liberty to be as big of a man as he can. And if Congress overpowers him, that will be no fault of the makers of the Constitution. And when Wilson gets to be president, this is the way he acts. He goes to the floor of the Senate. He goes to the House and speaks before him. Wilson's the first president to physically speak to the House of Representatives was the State of the Union. Thomas Jefferson had killed that idea, thought that was something like a king would do. Wilson brings it back. He pushes for tariff reform as the key lobbyist. He's in the building, in the Capitol. There's a president's office in the building at that time, no longer is. That alone tells you something about the change. But let's be fair here. To be fair to Wilson's idea, you have to put it in the context of the times. You have to remember that at the turn of the 20th century, Congress was seen as slow-moving, seen as a den of corruption. It was a mixing of two narrow constituencies not getting anything done. And so a lot of the thought was, how do we break that logjam? And for Wilson, it was the president. He actually got his opportunity to go from academic to actor. And, you know, it's largely a criticism. We, we subscribe to Wilson's view today. We gave you the quotes from, from Reagan, from, from Wilson. Uh, we gave you the quotes from, from recent presidents. You see some criticism. I mean, here's an article in the Christian Post in 2013. Obviously, it's aimed at President Obama. Ruin has been the legacy of power-intoxicated chief executives and their regimes throughout history. Lyndon Johnson used his mandate to broaden the welfare state and wage war in Vietnam. Nixon, after his stomping win in 1972, said he should be left alone about Watergate because of your votes are a mandate. Presidents near drunk with hubris of mandate routinely require pushback. So said the Christian Post, 2013. A few political science studies might be useful here. Julia Azari at Marquette University examined 1,500 communications of presidents and records from presidential libraries from Hoover to Obama. She finds there aren't many statements of mandate. Even somebody like FDR really won big. You don't hear the mandate of the voters referred to a lot. It seems to turn in 1980, where mandates are more often claimed by presidents. And the mandate doesn't often match the issues that the president uses it for. She notes that President Obama, for instance, immediately after his election, didn't link his election rhetorically to his policy on health care, but then later claimed a mandate when he was enacting the policy. This happens a bit, and this is a key argument against presidential mandate, in addition to Webster and Calhoun's argument that it sort of places the Senate and the House and your representatives in a much smaller box. You know, making them look like squabbling little children while the president is the great national leader. If it's true, what Wilson says, the positive is that the president's elected by all of the people, where Congressman Smith is elected in Wichita, the negative of that is that it's a really big election then, 
And there's lots of issues to discuss. And the the people are more likely, slightly more likely, to be able to know what Congressman Smith is for and against. That to sift through the massive campaign proposals and decide why they voted for one presidential candidate or another. Why did all the people vote? Political scientists Grossback, Person, and Stimson, who write Mandate Politics, uh, writing the book Mandate Politics, Cambridge University Press in 2012, also studied it, and they looked at how Congress reacts. Their belief is it's not so much that the people send instructions, but that Washington and the media believe it. They looked at how Congress reacts when a president or the media says an election occurred and there's a mandate. And they tend to change their usual voting habits at least for a few months, not very long. And surprise elections they found, like 1964 and 1980, and a lot of people thought Carter was going to lose, but not that big. Surprise elections tend to increase the change in voting behavior. Having read uh, Daniel Webster's speech some time ago, I have been meaning to do a cast on this concept of mandate. And now I think with the beginning of a new administration, and certainly one that's moving pretty fast and certainly claiming at least an electoral mandate since there wasn't a popular vote win, I think it's useful commentary. So among the many things that are going on right now, there's almost so much action going on from the White House, as you can see, President Trump trying to, it appears to me, trying to get done in the first couple of weeks as much of the campaign promises as he can, at least to be in a position to be able to say it, like issuing an executive order. It's using the same device that Obama, President Obama used several times, particularly in the second term. Here's a question I answered in 2014 back when President Obama said that he would make a pledge to act whenever possible without legislative authority. And the question was, do you worry that he may be moving into dangerous territory? And so I'll read this now since I answered it in 2014. Constitution says, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. Dangerous, in my mind, are things that are extra-constitutional, so watch out for that. To say an executive order itself is extra-constitutional, one would have to explain their understanding of the phrase. Here's an example. If President Obama sees John Kerry at the State of the Union and says, John, let's make sure we keep those embassies clean. I was in Paris, and it needs a little cleaning. You know, that's an executive order. But... The modern president can't do that with the mirrored employees he has. He can't shout out to them or talk to them. Thus, you have written executive orders which inform the bureaus, hundreds of employees, what the president exercising the executive authority that he has wants them to do. I'm not blind that there are some politics going on here and the president has used the statement to make a strike at political opponents. But to me, it still comes down to the actuals of each order Scope is going to be consideration. Despite his statement, this is President Obama's at time, that he would use them whenever possible, I think you will find the orders will always lack broad scope, will apply to small groups, and will apply to programs with an existing legislative approval. If an executive order exceeds constitutional authority, the matter can be brought before the Supreme Court. So, 
You saw recently that one of uh, President Trump's executive order was brought to a federal court. So there's limitations. The, the executive order certainly is powerful in that it can instruct employees. But if those instructions are violating the Constitution, it can go, or, or other federal law, it can go to the courts. The Congress has an opportunity to change law, or they can decide they agree with it and change law to fit the executive order. So I wrote that back in 2014, and I think it, it still applies some of what's going on today. There's another question I got. What's a good argument against if you take out California, Hillary Clinton lost the popular vote? Well, I would say if you take out California, or if you took out California, rather, in the past, Ronald Reagan never would have been elected governor in 66, and likely would not have become a president of the United States. California has been a state since 1850, and it's absolutely silly to even mentally or theoretically be taking states out of the union and deciding, well, if we just didn't have this, this is what would happen. These states, though, changed politically through history, hence my Reagan example. Up until Governor Pete Wilson's pretty divisive re-election run in 1994, California was helpful to GOP candidates. Ford, Reagan, and Bush 41 all won California. Clinton won it in 1992, but he remained worried about it, particularly in his first term, and made many, many visits there in hoping to secure it for 96. It was not a clear blue state at that time. There are many other arguments, of course. About California, any popular vote is no longer a national popular vote. Another would be that the margin in a popular vote does not really come from any one place. So, for instance, Hillary Clinton's popular vote win could have also come from adding up New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. She won most large states and made gains over President Obama in certain states, Texas and Arizona come to mind. So saying Hillary Clinton's popular vote win came from California creates an image of a candidate only popular in one state, or winning a big majority only in that state and nowhere else, which is not true. There are states across the nation that voted for Hillary Clinton with a large margin. In contrast, if you really want to pick at the concept, we shouldn't. There's more to say about the state wins of Donald Trump than Clinton. We have to remember Donald Trump's electoral wins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan were mere pluralities, not majorities, no larger than an average American suburb. So if one's engaged in these theoretical arguments, you could say that President Trump is in office because of 78,000 people in three states that happen to control the electoral votes in those states. Most of this is to show the fertility of such arguments. Michelle Minton writes on the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site, with hints that the Trump administration may curtail or block the press, I'm wondering about the history of the Fourth Estate as an adversary to presidents past. Have they ever collectively fought back against attempts to diminish their independence? Well, thanks, Michelle. I mean, James Carville called them the beast, the White House press corps, and that they had to constantly be fed. Um, they're a powerful group, even if in this age, with social media and with people kind of in their own polarized news channels, even if they are diminished. They can tie up a presidency in the blob for a while. Very different from being a candidate. That's what I think. I mean, some of the Trump activities so far do appear to be things that were done in some form. 
during the Bush presidency, for instance, but we've forgotten about it since then. He, Bush may have done things a little more artfully, but I'm reminded of the time that he got caught hot-miking a reporter. That's Adam Clymer. Adam Clymer, the New York Times, he's a major league a-hole. I mean, I think the, the, yes, that was a hot mic moment. It wasn't planned. He was talking to Dick Cheney, but I think it shows you the disdain for the press in that administration as well. And I think that's true of a lot of things that we're seeing right now. And I, I think it was, we were witnessing it in the Bush administration. It's just that Bush has retired and he doesn't make speeches now and he draws paintings and jokes around with Hillary Clinton at inauguration and things like that. Bill Clinton floated the idea of taking the press corps out of the White House and moving them to the executive office building. Allegedly for space purposes, but I also think that they were tired of the criticism and and having the press so close. The press is enormously close in the White House. And there was indeed a fighting back during that moment. And the, the press really were pretty savage with the Clinton administration, at least in the early going. And the whole Travelgate scandal all had to do with the Clintons firing the White House travel staff that booked the reporters' flights and hotels that they worked with and replacing it with Clinton's own, with the, with the Clinton's friends. And that turned into a, a, enough of a scandal to cause problems. My own feeling is that the, the, the rule of never fighting with someone with enough ink still applies, even where social media is taking over some of the traditional news and mind share. And it's possible to set up, you know, president-friendly friendly media sources and to just to speak to your own narrow base. I think when the situation changes from underdog candidate to government, attacking the media takes on a different dimension and there's pushback. I think Spicer's going to have some really tough weeks in a job that literally requires its members to pass a flak jacket to the next member of the job. It's a really tough job. And you could go and look at interviews at like Marlon Fitzwater and other previous White House press secretaries. It's an enormously tough job and there's conflict all the time. Obviously, there's a lot more of it already in this administration. They're decidedly anti-media. Kennedy fought with some of the, the newspapers. He would do more positive things. Like instead of bashing a newspaper, perhaps he would invite a reporter from a different paper, someone who wasn't so critical of him, to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with the president. And that's a form, even though it's a nice form, it's just as intimidating, particularly to the ones that don't get invited, as some of the more brash tactics. I defended President Obama in 2009, got a lot of flack, by the way, on the program, for attacking the coverage of Fox News. I said, you know, I think it's legit for a president to be able to express himself, uh, the you don't have to treat all the press as, as royalty above any criticism. So I think to some degree, I feel the same now. It does depend on how the press is being treated, specifically being denied questions, denied access. We'll see how this goes on. My overall feeling, though, is that a really hostile stance, this kind of war on the media, might have some benefits in a really small, narrow base, but it's not going to work over time. I know it's the odd 2017 thing where you're not supposed to make predictions anymore because everything's different, world is upside down, but the beast is still there and you still have to feed the beast to an extent. Otherwise, there'll be a really negative sheen on the whole presidency and eventually a lot of supporters and allies that you need will be jumping ship. 
doesn't happen usually in the first couple months of a presidency, but each month. Sometimes I think it's fatigue from just continuing on a party line, the desire to express oneself to one's constituents in a more independent way. That starts to happen, and everybody's still looking at approval ratings, no matter how much they'll hotly contest it, no matter how much polls were allegedly wrong you know, during the election. Uh, people are still looking at approval ratings and watching where those go as they make decisions. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. I've just got a great mention from Dan Carlin on Twitter. And, of course, I'm a big fan of Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History. If you haven't listened to his on, on World War I, you have to. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.